Hi, I'm Ariel Demaras, and I'm hosting a new podcast called Vice News Reports. With so much going on around the world, so many people telling you they have the definitive take on the news. We bring you to the news so you can hear it for yourself. From the newsroom that has earned more Emmy nominations than any other news team, this podcast goes where the story is, from conflict zones to the labyrinth of digital life. You've never traveled quite like this. Get the Vice News Reports podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly, and look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that, but I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, and Dana Dentata, and Satan. Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. Listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on. T-minus two weeks. Even in 2020, for some, the next two weeks may feel like the longest in years. The mail-in polls have opened in every state by now. The messages from both presidential campaigns are set, and very few believe that many undecided voters still exist. In the Electoral College, New York and California are unlikely to surprise anyone. The Dakotas, Mississippi, and Alabama don't seem to have any surprises in store either. All eyes are fixed on a very small handful of battleground states where the outcomes of the November 3rd election will likely hold all the cards for the rest of the country. I'm Clay Aiken. It's Wednesday, October 21st. And this week, Politicon welcomes two experts from two very different but very pivotal states to shed some light on how their states may determine the president for the rest of us. Kate Kinski is Professor of Communication, Government, and Politics at the University of Arizona. Chris Cooper is the Robert Lee Madison Distinguished Professor of Political Science at Western Carolina University. I'll ask them, what makes a swing state in 2020? How are the races in North Carolina and Arizona going? And what are their predictions? What's been motivating voters? And is there anything that could change their minds? And if it's possible, how the heck are we going to get along? So, Kate and Chris, thank you so much for being with us. I was uh, saying I just voted today early in North Carolina, and there was a line on our sixth day of early voting. There was a line that I stood in for an hour in the middle of a Tuesday, which is sort of unheard of. I have not voted in North Carolina on Election Day, I think except once. The year I ran for Congress, I voted in person on election day. But other than that, I can't remember. I've always voted early and I've never had to wait in line. And today there was a full gymnasium, uh, plenty of poll workers, plenty of access to, you know, processing people in and out. And I still waited in line an hour. This early voting thing is no joke right now in (laughs) North Carolina. Is Arizona voting, voting early already, Kate? It, it is. Uh, we've actually started, though, with the, just the drop-off, in, in my area in particular, with the drop-off ballots. And we do have some places where you can vote early. They're going to be increasing the number of early uh, voting stations next week. Okay, so it's starting to beef up pretty much. Most, many, many states in the country, I guess, have early voting um, now and certainly 
all of them are doing the absentee mail-in ballot in some form or fashion uh, because of COVID. So our, our, our thought with this episode this week was to try to take a look at two swing states. You know, we have been mulling over this election for months now, and it seems like every week we speak to people who kind of talk about what Biden's doing right, what Trump is doing right, what Biden's doing wrong, what Trump is doing wrong. And we're at a point now where most every place that's begun voting, that's going to vote early, has started. Um, everybody's mailing their stuff in. There's really, it's all over but the shouting, you know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. we're, there's no point in discussing almost anymore who's doing something right, what's, what might possibly change in this race. And, and really, so much of it's going to come down to, or at least many people believe, turnout, the number of votes, the way they're counted. And so many of these numbers are almost baked in. California, we know how it's going. New York, we know how it's going. Um, the Dakotas, we know how they're going. <laughs> and they're just these few swing states where, despite the national numbers being so dramatically in Biden's favor at this moment, there are still a handful of states, especially Arizona, Florida, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, where, you know, we don't know. So we wanted to figure out, first of all, why are Arizona and North Carolina swing states in in the first place? Chris, I'll start with you. Mm -hmm. I've been here my entire life. It's only been a swing state for a hot second. You know, it was it 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 never voted for a Democrat until 2008. And then North Carolina was like, okay, we did that. We're going back to red. Mm-hmm. Why is it so purple now? You know, I think it's a few things. One, I think we read maybe a little bit too much into the 2008-2012 flip, right? So at the it, running the risk of offending the host. I'll say that uh, that 2008 was important. <laughs> it was critical. But the reality is we were the reddest, we meaning North Carolina, were the reddest blue state in the country in 2008. In other words, of all the states that voted for Barack Obama, his margin was the smallest in North Carolina of any of them. So you flip forward to 2012, we flipped red, that is true, but we were the bluest red state in the country. In other words, of all the states that voted for Mitt Romney in 2012, his his margin was the smallest in North Carolina of any of them. So I think we've actually been a swing state or on the verge of being a swing state for a number of years. We have more registered Democrats than Republicans, um, but yet our Senate is sometimes uh, Republicans, sometimes Democrats. Our General Assembly, of course, flipped in 2010, but had had historic 100-year Democratic control before then. So I think we've always been a little bit of a tough tiger to catch by the tail. And I think this is just sort of the most recent manifestation of it is just the last few years where the national media environment has kind of caught on to the fact that North Carolina is a swing state. Kate, is Arizona a new swing state? I mean, it Kind of seems like think it seems like it's the first time I've seen it on the map in a while. It's as far as a state that might be won by Democrats, even even possibly. It, it's an interesting state in that I would say that the changing demographics and figures have been headed towards purple for a while. Uh, it probably would have turned um, purple sooner, uh, but for John McCain's presence, um, I would say that. This state is is unique in that we've been a consistently 
right-leaning state. And like a lot of places, we've been polarized for a while um, in that composition. Uh, the demographics of the, of the body itself have been such that it, it could have swung sooner, but I think a, a series of factors have had to, to come into play to make it um, very much a swing state this particular cycle. Uh, interestingly enough, in 2008, um, it was close enough on the margins that because Barack Obama's campaign had so much money, they actually dumped a bunch of advertising dollars into Arizona so that the McCain campaign would have to spend a little bit of money in, in Arizona rather than appealing to other states. At that point in time, I don't think it was ever truly at risk, but it was enough to, to, again, divert some of the McCain dollars into Arizona to make sure that it stayed in, in place for John McCain. So I would say a lot of factors have, have made it really ripe for being purple. And um, that's why we, we see what we see today. It, would it be fair to say that of the, of the swing states that are constantly listed um, as, as true toss-ups, that Arizona and North Carolina are the most conservative leaning of those, and I'm including Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Florida, uh, North Carolina, and Arizona. Are these two really the ones that are more conservative than those others? You know, I, th- I think... I'm sorry, go ahead, Kate. Oh, I was getting that. That's right. Um, I, would, I would say um, yes, but, you know, it's always a, a continuum, and there's different aspects of of being Republican or being conservative. I think for for Arizonas or Arizonans, um, the, the part of being conservative really um, has kind of a, a libertarian flair to it. Um, and then so that's coming into play as well. Chris? Yeah, and I think, you know, to some degree that, I think that may be true that, that we're on the more conservative end of the spectrum. But I don't know, I look at a state like Wisconsin, for example. I mean, I think Scott Walker and, and what happened up there looks a lot like North Carolina. I think some of the state legislative power grabs in Wisconsin, again, resemble a lot of what happened in North Carolina. Um, I would look at a state like Florida that, of course, has had some very, very conservative laws passed, particularly as it relates to felon disenfranchisement. So I think a lot of these swing states um, do, you know, again, sit right on this razor's edge. It doesn't mean that every citizen of these states is purple or is a moderate, but it means that there's roughly equal numbers of folks on the left and folks on the right. So, um, you know, I noticed you didn't list Iowa in that list, maybe for a good reason, but, you know, certainly Iowa leans a little bit to the right. And I think some folks might argue that Iowa could constitute a swing state in 2020. So I think most of these states are, are kind of tough ones to figure out. The flavor is a little different in North Carolina than Arizona, but um, I think their similarities are that that it's a tough states to figure out. Well, do you think that there are... I, mean, I think that's you, an important... Go ahead, Kat. I was just going to say, I think that's an important point that... that when we say that Arizona's purple, um, that doesn't mean that it's filled with moderates. Right. Um, so, so I think that the important thing to keep in mind with these swing states is that mobilization is key because there's a lot of people on both sides of the spectrum that are very much committed uh, to their positions. Um, but whether or not the parties get them out to vote, whether or not the presidential campaigns get them out to vote, um, really makes a difference. But so, true, of course. I mean, uh, swing states are not full of moderates, but that does tend to make 
their candidates more moderate. Don't don't you think? I mean, Chris, mm-hmm. Kirsten Sinema is not mm-hmm. a is not a a far left Democrat. Mark Kelly is not running to be a far left Democrat. I would argue that Tom that that Cal Cunningham has not attempted to be a far left Democrat mm-hmm. either. Um, so, are there more people who are undecided in these swing states potentially? I mean, they're obviously a chunk of folks in both Arizona and North Carolina who are willing to cross the aisle. Is that fair? You know, I think that is fair. And, um, you know, I think there are more folks that are, that are willing to split their ticket. I mean, take again, North Carolina as an example. So we have a democratic governor and then obviously we voted for Donald Trump for president in 2016. So that was the same election. We end up with one democratic candidate, one Republican candidate winning at the top end of the ticket. Uh, there were four counties in our state that actually voted for both of those folks. I'm sitting in one of them today in Jackson County, North Carolina, where we voted for Roy Cooper, our democratic uh, uh, governor, and we voted for Donald Trump. So yeah, maybe that there's some folks that are undecided, but uh, I think it may mean that we have slightly more crossover voters, slightly more split ticket voters than some other states do. Um, right now in the polling in North Carolina, there's somewhere between 8 and 12% of folks who again say they're going to vote for Cooper, again, the Democratic governor, and are going to vote for Trump. And there is some number, although it may be slipping, that say that they're going to vote for Trump and for Cal Cunningham. I want to meet that person. <laughs> I'll introduce you. <laughs> What's going? What about Kate? What do you what do you, what do you think? The I mean, Democrats have g- gained so much ground in Arizona so much more quickly than they have elsewhere. They have that. That is fair, and um, but I would say that 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 is is very true, and I would say a lot of that has to again do with the, the mobilization. One of the reasons why I think Republicans have been successful in Arizona. Hap- happens to do with the fact that they've had um, stronger organizations, uh, organizational strategies, um, that really, again, have gotten people out to vote. The numbers have, I think, always been there for the Democrats, but that doesn't mean the Democrats have gotten out to the polls. Also, keep in mind that with Arizona, that the party registration is now roughly a third, a third, and a third. So it's a third Republicans, a third Democrats, and a third independents. Um, those independents truly can go either way, but it's a matter of trying to appeal to the part of being independent that appeals to a given side um, that, that can make a difference. And so that is, you know, certainly a pool of potential there. In terms of, I mean, actual party registration, I say a third, a third, and a third. Technically speaking, um, the Republicans continue to have a slight edge. Um, they have about a 2.4% edge um, over Democrats, although, you know, uh, things have been changing. Now, did I read somewhere that Arizona is one of the few states where Democrat registrations has outpaced Republicans? It's, I think I've read elsewhere that it's been the opposite. But is, Demo- is are Democrats registering yes. people in Arizona? But again, this election cycle, yes, I think they've done uh, an, a really strong job. And a lot of that you know, has to do not only with the... Uh, incredibly important presidential campaign, uh, but having a Senate race, uh, I think that uh, Mark Kelly's campaign um, has done a good job fundraising uh, and uh, you know working those grassroots to get people mobilized. The opposite's true in North Carolina, is that right, Chris? Are, are Republicans registering more people in North Carolina than they are 
the yeah, Republicans are. Republicans are doing better, but the group that is doing the best of all is a little bit like Arizona, is this none of the above group. So September 2017 is actually the time where the number of unaffiliated, which is what we call independent voters in North Carolina, these unaffiliated folks, surpass the number of Republicans. So right now, in order, we have the most registered Democrats, then we have the most registered unaffiliated, and then it's Republican. And if the current trends continue, by 2022, unaffiliated will be the largest group in our state. It's already the largest group in about 20 some odd counties spread throughout our state and some urban centers and some rural ones. So Republicans have done a little bit better as of late, but the folks that are doing the best are, are none of the above. And those unaffiliated, though, they're not necessarily mm-hmm. moderates, are they? I mean, in, in independents in Arizona, right. they're not necessarily moderates. They're just people who don't want to identify with either party, correct? So I'll correct. grab North Carolina and then hand over for, correct. yeah. Yeah. So in, because in, in North Carolina, they voted, um, so we can look at the um, primary, which primary they chose to vote in. 2008, unaffiliated voters chose the Democratic primary, Republican primary in every primary since then until 2020, where they flipped back to the Democratic primary. So a lot of them are just shadow partisans, but I think there is some movability amongst these unaffiliated voters, particularly the younger folks who are just like astronomically uh, more unaffiliated than any other group. And and North Carolina also, like so many other states in the South, has a long history of, of people having registered as Democrats from years prior. I mean, my mother was registered Democrat for decades until she finally decided not too long ago to change her affiliation. I mean, is, is there a possibility that some of these people have finally just decided to change their registration uh, to Republicans? What, what's driving the the increase? The what's driving the right. registration gains on the Republican side here? You know, uh, I mean, on the so there's sort of three things going on at once, right? So um, one is in migration, which the Republicans are not doing great at in North Carolina. So when folks migrate to the state, they tend to register as unaffiliated or they tend to register as Democrat, right? So a lot of them have settled in um, an area for, for folks in other parts of the country called Cary, which in North Carolina sometimes is derisively known as the uh, the <laughs> containment area for relocated Yankees. And, uh, and that area tends to get a lot of Democrats, a lot of unaffiliated. You then have got, of course, the young people who are entering the electorate, and they are, again, much more likely to be unaffiliated. And then you've got these party switchers. And so about a million people have, sw- well, really a million examples of party switching in North Carolina over the last 10 years. And Democrats have definitely been the big loser amongst these party switchers. A lot of times folks will go from Democrat, they're kind of legacy Democrats, to unaffiliated, and then kind of complete the transition all the way to Republican. So what's going on with turnout in Arizona right now? I mean, I want to get to both. Obviously, I'll admit, and I've already admitted to Chris, that I specifically asked for him to be on this episode because I do follow your Twitter feed pretty religiously to find out what's going on with with absentee voters and voter turnout and how many people have voted in early voting here in North Carolina. But in Arizona, are, are there numbers that people are, that you're seeing as to how many people um, and what parties are dropping those ballots off already? I, you know, it's, it's hard to say. It's still a little bit, you know, too early to tell. Uh, what I will say about Arizona, though, is that it, it's, it's uh, been used to early voting. This is um, how we have, have voted for a long time. 
Um, what might be a little bit different is that um, with the contentiousness of the, the presidential campaign, um, people are more eager to get those ballots in sooner than later. Um, what we don't know is how much gain is going to you know happen once those people who have, would have already voted anyway, if we'd only had it on election day, you know, once they get their ballots in, will we see any gains above that? What are you worried about in Arizona? Are, are they handling, since you've, since you've done the absentee ballot, since you've done the early voting in the past, do you think the state is, is fully equipped to handle the, the larger number? I do think that it is equipped. I think that one thing that Arizona has, has done quite well over the past couple decades um, is handle, I mean, not only early voting, but just our voting record records in general. Like Arizona does a good job of that. So I don't really see that as a problem. Um, I haven't heard of any anything nefarious, you know, going on behind the scenes like we've heard about in other states. Um, so, you know, hopefully that continues to be the trend where uh, most places stay on the up and up. Chris, there's a mm-hmm. few things going on in North Carolina. Um, <laughs> what are you worried about when it comes to the counting of all the ballots? G- give folks an, mm-hmm. an, an idea of what is to be expected come November 3rd and beyond in North Carolina, since so many people sure, are paying yeah. attention here. Yeah, so just to just catch folks up, we um, we were the first, one reason we've had a lot of attention, we're a swing state, obviously, but also we were the very first state in the country to mail out ballots, right? So we're first in flight, it says, on our license plates, and we're also first in mail-in balloting, at least in the 2020 <laughs> cycle. And uh, it, it, it's been really an extraordinary rise. So we've already returned about 3.3 times the number of ballots as were returned in all of 2016. So take all of 2016, multiply it by 3.3, and that's where we are as of today. It was still a ways to go. So this is a big increase, and I think we're all trying to figure out how well the State Board of Elections is going to deal with that. There's also been what seems to be a lawsuit every week or maybe half week um, where we've been changing rules as to how we cure ballots. And so ballot curing is this really seems kind of technical thing, but basically if you return a ballot and you didn't mark it right, so you uh, your witness signature um didn't make it on there, you goofed somehow, the State Board of Elections or the County Board of Elections will then return that ballot to you to be cured or fixed, and then you mail that back. There's been all sorts of questions about how we do that curing process, and we're actually changing that midstream. So one thing I'm worried about is just the messaging of all that, how that gets out to voters. Um, The other big thing that's shifted in North Carolina so far is that traditionally absentee by mail, which is our technical term for for mail-in voting, tends to favor the Republican Party, right? You tend to get a lot of folks overseas who might be military. Their plurality of them are Republican. Not so much in 2020. In 2020, only about 18% of people who have returned ballots thus far by mail are Republican. So it's like overwhelmingly Democrats. And so what that's going to mean on Election Day, one, again, the messaging, but two, I think the first thing that hits in North Carolina is going to be this blue pop. And then I think the Republicans are going to gain as the day goes on because the way we process ballots is the first ones to be counted are going to be these early and the early absentee balloting. So I think watching it on election night, if you're paying attention to North Carolina, right when the polls close, you're going to see dims up. Just chill out, have another drink, give yourself a little bit of time, and I think it's going to start to look tighter. Is it is it expected that North Carolina will have all of their returns in 
on election night or are we looking at in, right. in North Carolina a few days of waiting to get all of them? Are, are winter ballots due? Yeah. So about so this is again a little bit in flux, unfortunately. But the the new so they have to be postmarked by election day, but they can be received up to seven days after election day. So there'll be a small number of ballots, it'll probably be very small, but that will be received actually after election day. And so they've gone back and forth as to what the right number of days should be. But uh, we will absolutely not have a hundred percent of our ballots that are even able to be counted. I do think we'll have the vast majority. I do not think we will be one of the states that, uh, that is kind of the, the negative poster child here. Although we'll see. Is the, is the same true in Arizona? Okay. I would say so in uh, 2018, when we had the Senate race, uh, the, the, the decision on that race wasn't made on election day. And so like a lot of other you know, states, It'll be not on election day that we know who's won, but it'll be carried out because of the high numbers. Um, the other thing I should mention is that you know, if we look at the primaries as giving us some indicator, uh, we know that enthusiasm um, for using those ballots is much higher um, than it ha- was, in the, was in the past over previous primaries. And so that also lets us know that it's going to be... Um, you know, not decided right away, but it will take a bit to process those mail-in ballots. So you don't expect to know the final result in Arizona on November 3rd? No, I think that that would be way too optimistic. Okay. What parts of your state are you going to be looking towards to on, on election night in Arizona? What parts of Arizona are you going to be looking at to tell you which way you think the state is headed? Are there certain regions in the state? You know, um, I would say you know, we have to have to look at, at the whole package, but I would say that, you know, we always look uh, both at what's, you know, happening in Maricopa County just because that's the largest. And we look at the margins of that in comparison to the county that I'm in, uh, that's Pima County. Uh, we tend to be um, a bit more uh, diverse in the, uh, the Pima County area. And so I think it just depends on how fast um, those, those numbers are coming in. Chris, what about yeah. in North Carolina? Is there a place that you're yeah. a county that you're looking at saying if sure. such and such goes one way that the state goes that way? Yeah, and I'll I'll try to grab a little bit of the front one too on just on other states to watch. I mean, I'll obviously I'll be watching you know who wins and who loses. But look, if Georgia looks close um, early on in election night, I think that's telling us something very important, right? So if Jamie Harrison in South Carolina has uh, any kind of chance to beat Lindsey Graham. Uh, and it looks like that. I think that is obviously telling us something, too. We know these states oftentimes tend to move in t- in tandem, right? It's not like one state goes one direction and then a similar state goes in a radically but, different direction, but do they, generally because, speaking. You mean it's sim- you're talking about similar states, but, you're, right, but we're exactly. also looking at places like California and New York where the margins between Trump and Biden are just going to be somewhat astronomical. I mean, Biden is yes. going to probably lead in the state of Washington and Hawaii by ridiculous amounts, and yet still we're looking at the same swing states. We're looking at the same That's states right. where people, I mean, I think to yes. my, I think I talk to my liberal bubble friends in New York, mm-hmm. and they say, yeah. how can it be swing? How can you be have swing, undecided or swing voters who can't decide between the two? But it seems to be the same states that always end up that way despite these huge margins elsewhere so that's right yes and and that's where i think if you look at a state like georgia that you know look by all means 
it shouldn't be that competitive, but the fact that Trump is taking money out of the Rust Belt and putting it into Georgia, I think, suggests that it may be. So that's one thing I definitely will be watching. And I agree completely that, uh, you know, California and New York aren't going to tell us much. But I think these states that may pair well together and looking at all the swing states can matter. As far as within North Carolina, um, I'll get real granular here. I mean, the, the counties that I think are the most interesting to look at are New Hanover County, which is where Wilmington is. So, um, nice place to visit. Also a good place to watch politics. That's a place that has gone increasingly blue over the last few years, but it's kind of a bright shade of purple right now. New Hanover went for, again, Roy Cooper and went for um, uh, went for uh, Donald Trump. Jackson County, way out west, very rural county, same deal. It was a Cooper-Trump county that went for Obama in 2008. I would also watch Granville County. I'm sorry, Jackson is, County uh, went for Obama in 08? It did. Jackson County went for Obama in 08 and, uh, that's and the Cooper in, in – that's exactly right. Okay. Um, <laughs> yes, there's a Western Carolina University. There's also a lot of kind of legacy Democrats, right, these old blue dog Democrats. So for the real political geeks that follow this stuff, uh, Heath Schuler um, uh, is from this area, from this Jackson County area way up in the mountains, right? These are – some of them are Democrats who – you know, um, may like the guns a little bit more than than your average Democrat, but they're Democrats nonetheless. Um, so Jackson, New Hanover, Granville is another one, and Nash. Those are sort of the four counties uh, that I try to watch in North Carolina and that I'll be watching very closely on election night. They all have profiles electorally that are hard to figure out, and their party registrations in those places tend to favor unaffiliated voters as well. Writing those down, writing them down, writing Pima County down in Arizona. (laughs) Go ahead, go ahead, Kate. Honestly, you know, it depends on like how much the 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 margins are are coming in. I mean, that's that's the one thing to keep in mind. If it turns out that you're looking, for example, at Maricopa, which normally would support Trump, but the margins seem really close, that's when things become more interesting. Uh, in terms of states overall, I would just say that, you know, I always pay heavy attention to Florida, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. Right now, if you look at the the, the trends in the polls, uh, the the difference between, you know, when it leans Biden and when it leads Trump is so razor thin. And all of those states have plenty of electoral votes up for grabs. You know, Pennsylvania with 20 electoral votes, Ohio with 18, Florida with 29. Um, those are the states that I really pay a lot of attention to because I think they give us a good sense of what's going on with, with the swing states as a package. After you listen to today's podcast, here's one to add to your playlist. I'm Christian O'Connell, and I've had this thought for a while. What if you took the world's funniest and most interesting people and asked them to share the stories behind their three most treasured items? When you said the idea, I thought, that's a really good idea. No doubt about it, the guitar. I think I know the the same chords now as I did when I was 14. You know what I mean? (laughs) From iHeartRadio, this is The Stuff of Legends. Add it to your playlist for free. Just search for Stuff of Legends in your podcast app. On September 17th, 2009, 24-year-old Mitrice Richardson disappeared without a trace in the woods near Malibu, California. She had been arrested at a beachside restaurant for failing to pay a tab and taken to the Lost Hills Sheriff Station. You know, I mean, she's not from that area, and I would hate to wake up to a morning report, girl, lost somewhere with her head chopped off. The police released her just after midnight with no car, no cell phone, no money. 
she doesn't know the area. She's never been in your area. Well, I think she's suppressed. That's what has me Is more that what, That's worried that. you more than just her... Okay. My trees disappeared into the darkness and was never seen alive again. I'm Catherine Townsend, host of the podcast, Helen Gone. We're going to try to find out what really happened to Maitrese Richardson. School of Humans and iHeartRadio present Helen Gone, Season 3. Listen to Helen Gone on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have folks, do you think folks have made up their minds, both of you, I mean, in your states, even though they're swing, even though we probably couldn't predict with any certainty which direction either one will go. Do you think that most voters have made up their minds, or do you think there's still some people in Arizona, Kate, who are going to watch this debate on Thursday, going to still make up their mind in the in the ballot booth? Are there still undecided voters in Arizona? I suspect there are very few undecided voters. I think it's mainly for those people who might be in that crossover category, trying to decide if it's worth filling out the ballot for them. And so it's very unlikely that someone's going to change their disposition in any way. Um, but it might be really hard for someone who has been conservative or has, you know, been a Republican to make that crossover to vote for Biden. Or by the same token, if someone has been a Democrat and they've, you know, always been a Democrat, it's kind of hard to make make that, that move, even though they know so it's tribal well, there. They might not support the, the candidates at the time. and Very much so. Um, so I don't think that there's a chance of like, really, again, convincing uh, people. Although, you know, things can happen. I would say that if we, you know, think, for example, in the country overall in, in 2016, I think the polls probably, you know, for a long time were fairly accurate. But then we had that October you know, 28th, you know, Comey letter that I think kept some people home and made some people more enthusiastic and get out to vote. And we still have time for, you know, unexpected events to occur, um, which might, you know, again, not change someone's proclivity to vote for Biden or Trump, but might change how enthusiastic they are or no longer enthusiastic. That's really what's at stake. Is it the same thing in North Carolina or are people still actually making up their minds, Chris? You know, I I agree com- completely with what Kate just said. Um, I, I think that's exactly how this works, right? There's there's not a whole lot of undecided voters out there. There's not a whole lot of persuadable voters out there. Um, so I think what we're talking about is mobilization. What we're talking about is enthusiasm. What we're talking about is the difference between putting a sign out in your yard and not putting a sign out in your yard, or donating money through Win Red or Act Blue, or not putting you know donating a little bit of money on there between Facebooking or tweeting or, or or Instagramming or whatever the kids are doing these days with social media to get people to turn out to vote. I think it's about these kinds of activities. Um, and we've seen a little kind of micro example of this in North Carolina in our U.S. Senate race, right? So we got this, as you know well, Clay, we got this uh, this incumbent named Tom Tillis, who's a Republican. Doing beautifully. Right. That was my transition, was going to head to the Senate for both of you in a second anyway. So take it away, Chris. Well, all right. Sounds good. So just the, the, the quick version. Uh, this guy, Tom Tillis, is our is – our, um, 
incumbent Republican and just a super brief history of the seat. It was held by for a very long time by a guy named Jesse Helms that I'm sure folks have heard of. Super conservative dude, and that's the understatement of the night. Um, and since Helms left, it has not stuck with one party, right? It went Republican, then it went Democrat, then it went back to Republican. Every election, too, not just one person. I mean, exactly. It's, it's, no one's held it for longer than one term since him. That's right, since Helms. And Tillis's margin was the smallest um, uh, in certainly in recent memory in that seat, too. So Tillis has got this kind of tough spot. He's the, the second least uh, popular senator up for re-election this term, right? So things aren't looking real good. He's running against this guy named Cal Cunningham, who is out of central casting for your, um, for your kind of Southern Democrat. He's not is uh, not extreme by any stretch, and then he gets caught in this. Um, what started is the most PG sexting uh, uh, scandal of all time, and turned into a full fledged affair. And uh, what we've seen is the polling numbers tighten a little, cutting him with this very small but durable lead. But the enthusiasm numbers on Cunningham are nose diving, and the uh, elaborate on is, that for me. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so if you ask people on a poll, you know, hey, who, are you excited to vote for this candidate? You're not excited. There's a lot of people who are saying, I'm going to vote for Cal Cunningham. But the implication is I ain't real happy about voting for Cal mm-hmm. Cunningham. And uh, if you look at his favorability ratings, you know, how much, you know, scales on scale of one to 100, we're 100 the whole lot and zero is not at all. How do you like this candidate? How favorable are you to them? Poll after poll is showing that his favorability numbers are taking a hit. So I think partisanship will be enough to carry it over the line. But I do think that the mobilization around Cunningham is is going to hurt him at the margins. And we've even seen that the guy has, um, if, if you're young, he has ghosted uh, people for the most part. If you're older and a basketball fan, he's been playing the four corners. He's been passing the ball around, trying to run out the clock and maintain this small lead. So that October surprise that Kate was talking about really has happened in North Carolina. And I think it's played out exactly the way that she talked about it perhaps playing out. So Senate in Arizona, is there... <laughs> Is there, is there any person who should have lower self-esteem than Martha McSally? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I mean, I'm not, I don't try to be nonpartisan. I just own it. But I don't mean to be completely rude. But, I mean, you, you got handed a seat. You lost it. You got handed another seat. You lost it. I mean, Arizona has gone from... No Democrat in the Senate, no Democrat representing it in the Senate in since the early 80s, I believe. Yeah. And in the course of two years, Martha McSally has, is it unfair to say that it's Martha McSally who has lost both of those seats? Is she just a victim of a, a, a political time that's not right for her? Or is Martha McSally that disliked in the state of Arizona? You know, I, I mean, I do think it has to do in in large part with um, how she's aligned herself on issues and, and Trump, and and sticking to that and not uh, branching out in the same in in a, in a very different way um, from the candidates that we had in uh, cinema in twenty eighteen and Mark Kelly uh, currently, where the difference being both those Democrats, um, you know, certainly are Democrats. But at the same time, um, they seem in a lot of ways uh, like John McCain or Jeff Flake, where there's still 
willing to speak their minds when it's not necessarily party line. And I think that the, that just the rhetoric around that, you know, it really does tend to appeal to Arizona uh, voters in the sense that we do have a lot of independents and a lot of people who are, are libertarian and they kind of respect the idea that someone, you know, isn't necessarily beholden to party, you know, or, or, or to president. And I think that that really has been perhaps a disadvantage uh, for, for McSally. Because she would be, I mean, is it fair to say that she is more unpopular in the state of Arizona than Trump is? I mean, she's, do you think that race is over practically? I mean, I know you don't want to call it specifically, but no, yeah, she I, has, I, I would never she has call run, it. She, she has run behind Mark Kelly by large margins since he got the nomination. Is that right? She, she yes, she has. And if you look at uh, the, 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 the tracking, like real clear politics, and you look at it across time, um, there, I mean, there's been movement, but it's been little, little movement. And if you look at the, the charts, um, he has been uh, ahead of her uh, for a long time. Uh, you know, even before he got the Democratic nomination, you know, the polls suggested that he was running well against her, and that simply has continued. He has also done a remarkable job um, for his first time really running running for office. I've done a remarkable job um, as, as a first-time candidate. Excellent job fundraising and an, elect, an excellent job um, really just holding his own in the in the one debate, for example, that he had against McSally. And so I think those things certainly uh, point in his favor. You know, in her, dis- I mean, you know, in Part of the, I think, the stranglehold for her was she did lose the seat to uh, Cinema uh, by a close margin, by 2.4 percent in 2018. Um, she did take over the seat that had been formally held uh, by McCain, uh, but was you know given to her um, after John um, Kyle temporarily filled in for just a little bit. Um, so it was handed to her. And I think that, um, you know, part of the problem is for her is that a lot of people still have framed her getting that scene around the fact that she did lose to cinema in 2018. So, so people were, uh, you're saying people were dissatisfied with the fact that she lost and still got to become a Senator and she's carried that weight. I mean, I would say, I would say that that's a possibility for, you know, really her not being able to, to break through on her own. Um, as a candidate. Uh, the other thing that I would just note is that, um, I mean, she just, again, in terms of the fundraising, um, Mark Kelly's campaign has done a stronger job getting those those dollars in than the McSally has. So it sounds like, it sounds like Joe Biden will have no coattails if if anything, he's not going to, Mark Kelly doesn't need Joe Biden's coattails in the state of Arizona, but it sounds as if though maybe you were saying, Chris, that Cal Cunningham may actually skate by perhaps on either Biden coattails or anti-Trump uh, backlash yes. in North Carolina. You know, I think that's possible. Again, it's close. We're within the margin of error, but it, it looks like his, his still has a lead in most polls. It was an average of about four and a half percentage points he was up. It looks like it's dropped to more like two percentage points now. I think part of it is the um, is, is Trump is, uh, is is sort of this really difficult dance partner for Tom Tillis, the Republican, right? He's Tillis is representing a Republican or a, a swing state, um, but he's obviously a Republican. He can't alienate the Republicans too much, 
But on the other hand, he can't go too far to the other side either and, and be sort of a, a full-threaded critic of President Trump. So I think part of it is Cunningham's candidate quality until the recent scandals. Part of it is the state mood. Part of it is this difficult dance that Tom Tillis has had to, to do. Tillis also has a long history, as you know, in North Carolina politics and um, made a lot of friends, but also a lot of enemies when he was in the North Carolina General Assembly. And the General Assembly here was um, sort of famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, for passing um, a series of laws that, that were considered among the most conservative in the country. I want to take um, some of the quick-fire questions that are sent in by our listeners specifically for uh, both of you. If you're listening, you can send in your questions to us by email, podcasts at politicon.com, or uh, on Instagram or Twitter at Politicon. Um, Kate, we'll start with you. Um, I guess that says, does that say man from Los Angeles? Oh, that's Mari. <laughs> Sorry. Mari from Los Angeles asks, Democrats seem to have gained ground in Arizona much faster than Georgia or North Carolina. Why? I think that's an excellent question. Uh, going back to the Senate race, I think that it's a combination of not only things being high stakes at the presidential level and you know both sides knowing that it's high stakes at the presidential level, but having that very competitive uh, set, well, I just don't know about competitive, but having a, uh, a very unusual Senate race in which uh, Mark uh, Kelly's campaign, you know, again, is ahead in the polls, has done a better job at fundraising. I think that in comparison to previous campaigns, this is where we're seeing um, you know, those grassroots campaigning and just the fact that parties matter. And in this particular campaign, Democrats have done a much stronger job than they have in years past, really getting those people registered and, you know, what they hope, of course, is also sending in those ballots. Okay, Chris, Brianna from Topeka asks, people keep talking about the silent Trump voter. Are they out there in North Carolina? I'm sure they are out, out there in North Carolina. Um, it's not you know, we'll see, right? We'll, we'll see what happens after election day. I'm sure they're here. Um, I, I got to tell you that, you know, the, when I talk to folks that are Trump voters, they don't seem to be very silent, right? I mean, they're, they're pretty proud of, of the person they're supporting. I think the silent Trump voters that perhaps existed in the 2016 election are exactly the kind of people that were turned off by four years of pretty divisive rhetoric. So I'm sure there are some of them. I do not see them as being the people that are going to drive this election. If Trump wins North Carolina, it's going to be close, and it's going to be uh, kind of, I think, as we expect. I don't think there's going to be this huge groundswell of Trump support that we don't expect. I'll tell Brianna, Wake County is not a conservative county. It's very blue, and <laughs> there are more Trump signs randomly scattered around this county. They aren't very shy here, so I don't know. Maybe they're shy elsewhere, but if you're going to be shy somewhere, you'd think you'd be shy here in Wake County. Um, <laughs> Kate, um, David from Tempe asks, should Biden be campaigning more in the state if he wants to flip Arizona? I think that's an excellent question, uh, and I would say that when those when presidential candidates visit, they got a lot of free media coverage, right? Because it's not just that they're visiting and talking with 
some people who support them, but they get that local news that then covers them, and um, it certainly would be a boost. Um, you know, you know. In comparison, we saw uh, Biden Harris, you know, visit Arizona October eighth, I believe it was. Uh, in comparison, you know, Trump has been out uh, consistently. Of course, the Biden Harris campaign are a little bit at a disadvantage to the extent that they're not holding large rallies in the same way that the Trump campaign feels comfortable doing because of the differences in how they you know, feel about uh, the coronavirus. And so that is certainly a constraint. But I would say that if the Biden campaign uh, could come out, um, that certainly would help uh, boost motivation on the Democratic side. Chris, Lilly from Greenville asks, is this the last year Republicans have a demographic chance for the presidency? Uh, great question. Um, of course, one of which Greenville, South Carolina, North Carolina. But I was anyway, asking the uh, same thing. We're going to say North Carolina, <laughs> okay. even though the other one's closer to you. But I'll. I'll. That's all right. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll take the one on the eastern side of the state okay. where where President Trump was not long ago. Right. Uh, no, I I don't think so. I, I think I think we're going to have a two party system um, for the foreseeable future or longer. And I think the parties have a way of adapting. I, I don't see this as the death of or perhaps even the decline of the Republican Party. I think we're going to have a two-party country, a polarized country for a long time to come. I want to follow up on that one with both of you. Is What do you see for the future of each of your states when it comes to a presidential race in 2024? Kate, do you think Arizona has shifted towards the Democrats um, and will remain a swing state? Or do you think that come 2024, this this race this year is so much about Trump that come 2024, Arizona will head back towards the conservative Republican side. Is it? Is, are you permanently a swing state, or do you think that this is just a a Trump anomaly? You know, I mean, I think sort sort of both. I mean, Trump certainly makes things more of an anomaly, but I think that if you look at where Arizona has been be- has been at, you know, going back in time, the margins in support between the Republican and the Democratic presidential candidates have been shrinking over time. And so they become much, much slimmer. I think maybe what's different is people really realizing that, whoa, those margins have been so much slimmer. And to the extent that they realize it and the Democrats see that they now have a chance in, you know, what was previously seen as a red state, I think makes a difference. And so my bet is that Arizona continues to be a swing state in 2024. Um, maybe a little different tone to the question for North mm-hmm. Carolina because it's been swingy for the last few cycles. Mm-hmm. Is is this in North Carolina an anomaly? Is it simply that North Carolina and like much of the rest of the country um, is shifting a little bit leftward simply because of Donald Trump? Do you think 2024 will be a good year for Democrats in North Carolina? Or do you think the Republicans are going to have the ability to bounce back um, once Trump is not on the ballot anymore. Right. Whether he wins or loses. Having, right. I think not having Trump on the ballot will will probably help. But I mean, I think it will be a swing state, certainly in 2024 and for the foreseeable future. We, I don't think we've experienced the kind of demographic shift that Arizona has experienced. Um, so I think their path has probably been a little bit different than North Carolina. But I'm also seeing some of the other growth states in the South slowly moving back towards the Democratic Party, right? Again, we're seeing this, just the fact that we're having a conversation about South Carolina, 
perhaps a Democrat winning there, right? Um, even what odd stuff happened. With, I know you don't buy it. I listened to your Jessica Taylor episode. <laughs> <laughs> wake me up but, uh, when, he, when he wins. <laughs> I mean, I'd love it, but wake me up. I tend to agree. But I think I think what Harrison's done in all seriousness is to is to start to build a party back in the state of South Carolina. And so I think that can have an effect. And I think what's going to happen in North Carolina is we're going to stay fairly steady as some of these other states move. I think we'll be a purple state, a squishy state, a battleground state. You pick your adjective. We'll be there in four years. If Jamie Harrison wins, I'm going to bed because it's over. As far as I'm concerned, if Jamie Harrison wins, <laughs> Biden has won, he might have won Texas, I'll find out in the morning. I can go to bed. I just don't know that I see Jamie Harrison winning as much as I might love that. Um, you know, and I, the last question I want for, to ask both of you, we we started this podcast, um, God, pre-COVID, <laughs> believe it or not. I can't believe it. Remember a time when we weren't COVIDed, but um. I, Specifically kind of to get people from either side of the aisle talking to the other side and trying to get folks to come together and have constructive conversations. <laughs> Better chance of Jamie Harrison winning in South Carolina than that. Um, and we slowly have morphed it over the, over the past months to have just one person on or to just have experts on that weren't necessarily partisan because it's very tough to get anyone from the right and the left to come together and have a civil discussion. It's just, it's, it's not easy. And I have personally theorized, hypothesized that perhaps the fact that I grew up in a swing state I ran for Congress as a Democrat in a blood-red district and have spent so much of my life with family members who are of different parties than I am and walking down the street and seeing about 50-50. The fact that I'm from a swing state, I believe, has kind of given me a perspective that I don't necessarily see from Democrat friends of mine in New York or California or states where, you know, they are surrounded in what we might call a bubble. So, from two people who, you know, live and work and study and research swing states specifically, states where there are a mix of people, you know, I wonder if you believe that politicians who come out of North Carolina and Arizona um, are forced to moderate a little bit, to listen to the other side, more so than perhaps a senator from South Dakota, who's probably only talking to Republicans, or a senator from Idaho who's probably only talking to Republicans, or New York who's only talking to Democrats. And just in general, I'll ask you the question we ask everybody, taking into account what you know from living in and studying swing states, Kate, how the heck are we going to get along? That's an excellent question. Um, I, I would say that uh, one but for those who have lived not just in swing states, but I would say more specifically in competitive districts, I think how you think about things does does differ. And if you have lived in a competitive district, you know that the politicians do have to moderate and people do have to make concessions. I mean, how we get, get out of this uh, might be more messiness before up some clarity in, in how More? we see each other, but I think that like, redistricting really matters. <laughs> I think that um, 
I think it, I think it's possible. I, I think that uh, I think that people can. If anything, the last two years, I think people can always get worse. Girl, I've been hoping this was always, the bottom. I ain't gonna lie to you. But you know, it's, so one of the things I study, in, in addition to, to states in general, is, is uh, civility and tracking uh, incivility across time. And we're seeing changes in how politicians talk. Uh, that um, you know, it is one of those times where I would say I would love to go back to some previous norms. Um, that we had to make discussions more possible. Um, we've seen breaks, for example, in you know national discussions um, where people call each other liars. You know, frequently that's become something that's that's a more recent finding. Diane Feinstein just got trashed because she complimented a Republican and gave him a hug. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's pretty bad. Right? I mean, I, whether you agree, I mean, I certainly disagree with Lindsey Graham personally, but I cer- it, I'm not going to trash someone for having to, for trying to be civil with him. Right. And I think things are, are felt more viscerally, uh, at least at this moment in time, than, than they have in the past. I think that, you know, one of the problems is everyone wants to see the other side as the problem. And mm-hmm. very few people want to uh, do, do some introspection, police their own side. And um, really think, you know, is it, you know, everyone being a Democrat that is only going to make you happy or on the other side, everyone being a Republican, um, because that's not the way the world is. And again, we need that introspection to, you know, maybe hold to higher norms um, than, you know, whatever is best for our party. Chris, how the heck are we going to get along? Uh, I'll start with some bad stuff and I'll end with some maybe no, good stuff. How's that? Okay. All right. Well, so we haven't had enough negativity. So, um, right. I, I, <laughs> so, uh, it wouldn't be 2020 if I didn't lead with something kind of bad. Right. So, uh, two things that, that, that worry me and, and, and keep me up at night a little bit. One is when we move from persuasion elections to mobilization elections, right? So even in a competitive district or in a competitive state, if winning and losing is about mobilizing the other side, not about persuading them, then I think you end up with a lot of the same kind of vitriol. And in some of these competitive states and competitive districts, there's a political scientist named Frances Lee who has a book called Insecure Majorities. And sort of what she shows is that sometimes when you don't think you're going to be in charge for very long, that's when politicians actually may act the most extreme because it's like act now or never. So that's your kind of bad news stuff. On the good news, um, and these words had never been put together before, but some good news I saw on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> there's a oh, two, <laughs> I know, I know. Two, uh, two folks running for governor of Utah. I don't know if y'all saw this today, um, but there's a, a Democrat and a Republican, and they're running against each other. And they have this ad, everybody should find it, where they say something to the effect of, hey, we disagree on how we should get there, but we have the same vision for America and we're going to accept the outcome of the election, whatever happens. And they- They did an ad together? Together. You should I'm find dead. it. It's incredible. It's like, those are the that's, two people you should have on, actually. That's the Mormons in Utah right there. They do it a little bit different <laughs> out there. God bless them. <laughs> well, they might have something we can learn from them. Right? No, so, I'm not uh, disagreeing. Yeah. So I think that's- that's part of it. And there's uh, um, one other on the kind of reading material book. There's a, a, a political scientist named Lee Drutman who has a book. Uh, I think it's called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop. 
And the book says what you would think it would say, right? It kind of makes this argument about how we're in this two-party doom loop and how we can get out of it. And unlike a lot of political science work, he kind of ends with some proactive thoughts. So if you read that book, you may not buy everything in it, but I think it's a good place to start as we think about how to get along a little bit better. You're not going to get out of this uh, without giving me a prediction, Kate. Make make a prediction today. Do you think that that Arizona will will send Mark Kelly to the Senate or Martha McSally? Do you think it'll go for Biden or Trump? Oh, I I you know I really try hard not to do these predictions because I do think that there's so much time left. I mean, I realize it doesn't seem like a lot of time. Um, you know, right now, if we trust the polls, it would say uh, you know the Kelly will win and Biden, but. Again, I think about 2016. In 2016, we had, that, again, that Comey letter come in on October you know, 28th. And I think that really did change the course of the election. You know, it is good for the Democrats that so many are early voting. Um, but since mobilization matters, I do think that a last-minute October surprise um, could change anyone's game. Okay. Chris, as a as a Southern sure. Democrat myself, I don't think that the Comey letter personally made much difference in the state of North Carolina. I think that the, the vote was baked for Hillary Clinton here. But I want you, Chris, to make your prediction about 2020 um, in North Carolina, Cal Cunningham or Tom Tillis or uh, and Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. What's North Carolina going to do? You know, I'll, I'll put in some of the same caveats that, that Kate did. Um, anything can happen. October surprise. I think all that is is legitimate and sincere. Um, and, and I also think in some ways in, a, in a, the definition of a swing state, right, is one that could go either way, a battleground state, a purple state, whatever you want to call it. And so I, I hate in some ways to say I think this is what's going to happen because the one thing we know is it's going to be really close. I mean, I, I – I think Cunningham's a great example, this Cunningham-Tillis race. Cunningham has the lead right now. There's no doubt about it. There may be more things that break. Could that matter? Yes, it could at the margins. And boy, the presidential race here is, I think Washington Post today had a poll, and I think they even used the phrase too close to call. So I will end it there and disappoint Uh, you, unfortunately. Chicken. (laughs) That's okay. I've been called Uh, worst in just today. (laughs) Kate Kinski is a professor at the University of Arizona in communications and in government and public policy. Chris Cooper is the Madison Professor of of political science and public affairs at Western Carolina University. Um, you can follow him at Chris Cooper WCU on Twitter. And Kate Kinsky is Kate Kinsky, K in Kate and K in Kinsky, Kate, K E N S K I on Twitter. Also, both of you, thank you so much uh, for joining us and kind of giving us a little bit of insight into these incredibly pivotal states. If you're listening in Arizona or North Carolina, please make sure you vote. If you're not in one of these swing states, please make sure you vote. Um, and also like and subscribe and do all that fancy stuff on our uh, on our podcast, whatever you call it, page. I don't know all this stuff. And we'll be back next week with an episode of How the Heck Are We Going to Get Along? After you listen to today's podcast, here's one to add to your playlist. I'm Christian O'Connell, and I've had this thought for a while. 
What if you took the world's funniest and most interesting people? Hello, I'm Ricky Gervais. I'm Celeste Barber. Some people call me Beyonce. I'm Russell Brand. And ask them to share the stories behind their three most treasured items. No doubt about it, the guitar. I think I know the same chords now as I did when I was 14. From iHeartRadio, this is The Stuff of Legends. Add it to your playlist for free. Just search for Stuff of Legends in your podcast app. On September 17th, 2009, 24-year-old Mitrice Richardson disappeared without a trace in the woods near Malibu, California, and was never seen alive again. I'm Katherine Townsend, host of the podcast Helen Gone. We're going to try to find out what really happened to Mitrice Richardson. School of Humans and iHeartRadio present Helen Gone Season 3. Listen to Helen Gone on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.